0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
1: It's the Media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. When I was blathering on about the Super Bowl yesterday, and it was an amazing game, I meant to talk about Rihanna. People are still buzzing about the halftime show. And look, some, many people loved it, some people not so much. For me, I was struck by two things. One, um, from the very beginning, even as she emerged in that red dress and she was being lifted to great heights in the stadium, heights that would have made me freaking dizzy, um, you could see that there was, she was lip-syncing. I mean, there was no attempt to hide it. You know, she her lips were not moving and the sound was playing. And I'm thinking, like, everybody's been waiting for this. They want to hear Rihanna sing. She has this incredible voice, and yet, you know... A lot of it is prerecorded. So that was a disappointment. The second thing is, immediately, this is something a guy would not notice. Maybe a guy who paid more careful attention to me than me. Uh, that there was immediate, you know, on Twitter and just in, in living rooms across the country, people were like, well, is she pregnant? She kind of looks pregnant. I, I think she must be pregnant, even though she had her first child, uh, it seemed like nine or maybe it was, you know, couple more than that months ago um and then as soon as the performance was over rihanna's pr people put out a statement saying yes we can confirm she's pregnant with her second child so that was an amazing bit of choreography to announce it that way by not announcing it letting people see her and then confirming it so hats off to rihanna on that bit of pr stuff meanwhile uh jake tapper of CNN, huge, crazy Eagles fan, you know, shows up with the green jersey and everything. And so he must have been very disappointed. But to his credit, I got to say, yesterday he had Patrick Mahomes on, you know, the guy, the incredible quarterback from the Kansas City Chiefs who beat his Eagles team. And he said, congratulations on an unbelievable game. And how are you feeling? And Mahomes said it had been kind of a roller coaster. And Mahomes said, sorry, I made you had a bit of a rough night. Um, and, you know, as I said, and, you know, Kellyanne Conway, who I interviewed on Media Bush, she was at the game. I'm sure, you know, after that first half, everybody thought, okay, the Eagles are going to crush it. And that didn't happen. So, um, you know, 113 million people watched, uh, the Super Bowl on Fox last year was about a hundred million. I, 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 maybe there's just more interest in this matchup. I don't know, but. There are so few events these days that are like television events where the almost the whole country is, you know, getting out the snacks and it's, you know, making a night of it over this sort of event. And (laughs) I mean, by comparison, this is not to denigrate the president, but Joe Biden reached 27 million people with a state of the union. Well, look, that's a political speech. This is a game. You know, political speeches are what they are. In a football game like this, there were all these storylines, the the two brothers playing on opposite teams, the two black quarterbacks. Anyway, let me move on. Um, This is quite an amazing item involving MSNBC. Former MSNBC host Crystal Ball, who I've interviewed a few times uh, years ago on my show, said she was scolded, according to Mediaite, by network executives for her coverage of Hillary Clinton in 2014. That is, she dared to criticize Hillary Clinton in 2014. Quote, next time you do any commentary on Hillary Clinton, it has to get approved by the president of the network, executives told Ball after she uh, aired a monologue. This is before Hillary was running, but everyone knew she was going to run. Critiquing uh, Clinton's Wall Street connections and unfavorability among voters. Uh, She said this in a sit-down with Joe Rogan. During the monologue, Ball talked about how people are going to hate this lady, and Clinton was a terrible candidate for the moment. Well, she wasn't the world's best candidate. But, I mean, that is just so revealing that even not in the middle of a campaign, that one of an opinion hosts would be told, you can't talk about this, one of the most prominent Democrats in the country, without claiming it with the president of the network. Now, A lot of you who are kind of familiar with Fox but don't really watch it, this would never happen. There are lots of different viewpoints within the conservative side. There are lots of different viewpoints, different viewpoints on Trump running again, different viewpoints on Ron DeSantis, different viewpoints on Joe Biden. But more importantly, I mean, I've worked there for almost 10 years now. I worked at CNN for a much longer time before that. Uh, Nobody has ever called me and said, you know what? Don't go there, or you got to tone it down, or you shouldn't criticize this person. Uh, It does not work that way. MSNBC, which used Joy Reid, Rachel Maddow, and Nicole Wallace to cover Biden's State of the Union, you know, doesn't really have much of a news division. It has people from NBC News, who I think are very good reporters and who it uses, but it's primarily Opinion Network. Now, there's lots of opinions on Fox, but we have a news division. And that's what I'm part of. Anyway, didn't mean to go off on that tangent. Okay, uh, just a little bit of a, a, a tease here um, from Donald Trump's Truth Social. Uh, this was after, I believe, New York Times ran a story saying he's, a lot, he's spending a lot of time thinking up nicknames for DeSantis, like Meatball Ron and others. Uh, all the fake news is reporting that I spend large amounts of my time coming up with a good nickname for Ron De <laughs> Uh, who is obviously going to give the presidential thing a shot. They're all 100% wrong. I don't even think about it. A very important subject to me. Three exclamation points. Okay, raise your hand if you don't think Donald Trump spends time thinking about nicknames like Lion Ted and Sleepy Joe and Crooked Hillary and so forth. Uh, That's not a criticism. I'm just telling you. Okay. Okay. Now, how many bites of the presidential announcement Apple does Nikki Haley get? I mean, this is so symptomatic of the modern media-slash-political world. So, first she leaks word that she's probably going to run, and they all do that. Then, she gets a lot of publicity by saying, here's the date that I'm going to announce, February 15th, which is tomorrow. Today, this morning, Axios has the exclusive video in which the former South Carolina governor announces her candidacy for president. But she's still going to do the event, of course, tomorrow in her home state. So in this video, uh, she says she grew up in a racially segregated town. I was the proud daughter of Indian immigrants, not black, not white. I was different. My mom would always say your job is is not to focus on the differences but the similarities. My parents reminded me and my siblings every day how blessed we were to live in America. Some look at our past as evidence of that Americans founding, America's founding principles are bad. They say the promise of freedom is just made up. Nothing could be further from the truth. So, you know, this is quite a rollout. Now, as far as Nikki Haley's candidacy, uh, I think she brings a lot of strengths to the table, but I don't see the lane for her. Uh, I don't see how she's going to, you know, sure, she's different. She's the only woman who looks like is going to run on the GOP side. Um And I don't know how she navigates dealing with Trump. So we'll see what she says tomorrow. But I do tip my hat to her for getting out there uh, while everybody else is like, well, we'll just wait a few months and see what's happening. But one of the problems she has now is that it's become more evident that South Carolina Senator Tim Scott from the same home state uh, is going to run as well. And he would probably be the only black candidate. And so um, we'll see how all that shapes up. Let's get to story number one. I just continue to be in a kind of a state of amazement, amusement, and shock at the shootdowns of all these unidentified f- flying objects. And it's getting serious in the sense that it's really ratcheting up tensions between the U.S. and China, even as the Pentagon says it can't confirm. But I think it's pretty likely. Uh, that the last three, this is not the Chinese spy balloon, but the last three objects, whatever they were, smaller than a spy balloon, but they haven't apparently been able to recover and tell us what these things are, that they are tied to China. Maybe not, but that would be an incredible coincidence. So here you have the New York Times weighing in on this new geopolitical confrontation, tensions between the U.S. and China escalating on Monday as the two nations traded fiery accusations over spying programs. You know, it seemed like after just the spy balloon was taken down over the Atlantic uh, on President Biden's orders that he Biden certainly was trying to cool tensions and everyone was trying to ratchet things down. But then you have boom, boom, boom. And, you know, maybe this will become dated today. But, you know, one shot down over Alaska, one shot down over Canada, a third one shot down over Lake Huron. Uh, in a sign of how close the U.S. has been monitoring the balloon surveillance program, directed by the Chinese military, U.S. officials said they began tracking the spy balloon as it lifted off from Hainan Island in southern China in late January. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just so puzzling because they shoot these things down, they announce them, they can't say what they were, I I don't think there's any question they have a surveillance purpose. They're flying low enough, unlike the original, uh, the original, the the one that started all this spy balloon that was up 60,000 feet. Most commercial jet flights take place at about 30,000 feet. Some of these now are about 20,000 feet. One of the reasons they're being shot down is they could create an air traffic accident. So um, China turns around and says that the U.S. has the largest spy network in the world, that has conducted extensive global surveillance, including capturing electronic communications, that compromise the privacy of citizens of the world. And this woman from the Chinese Foreign Ministry even says the U.S. sent 10 balloons illegally into Chinese airspace since last year. So uh, NSC official here in the States says that any claim about balloons in the U.S. is false, but the larger charge is not false because of the widespread spying among everybody. So, and there's some good background here in this Times piece, um, which also quotes the woman, uh, Adrian Watson from the NSC, is saying China hasn't often any credible explanation about its balloon stuff. So then comes the reality check. Um, and by the way, Joe Biden had been trying to arrange a meeting with Xi Jinping this is certainly not going to help with that. Um, the U.S. does run extensive espionage programs aimed at China. The collision of a U.S. electronic spy plane and a Chinese fighter jet in 2001, I don't remember this, which led to the presumed death of a Chinese pilot, revealed the scope of the American effort to collect electronic communications, though the plane was well off China's coast. The National Security Agency has pierced the networks of China's leading Telecommunications company, Huawei, and track Chinese soldiers as they move nuclear weapons. Now, China has long done the same to the US, stealing the designs for the F thirty five stealth fighter and the security clearance files of twenty two Americans from the Office of Personnel Management. So there's a whole lot of spying going on. Reminds me of that old mad magazine cartoon, Spy versus Spy. But that was during the height of the Cold War and the spy versus spy there was, you know, like um Rocky and Bullwinkle, going up against Boris and Natasha. Um, Let's see here. If any of the three flying objects destroyed in North America turn out to be Chinese, it would amount to a major provocation on the heels of the spy balloon episode. U.S. officials stressed they were not jumping to the conclusion, except they're sort of hinting at it. Biden has offered uh, top national security officials to review how the U.S. monitors its airspace. Yeah, about time. And there's even uh, a UFO task force. And as I mentioned yesterday, uh, officials saying, well, we don't believe it's aliens or extraterrestrials. Now, I've seen a couple of headlines that say Biden remains silent, you know, after three spycraft shoot-downs. And it's true. I mean, they issue statements, but President Biden has not said anything publicly, meaning, you know, talking to reporters or any kind of short speech or whatever. And I was thinking about this, and it's very much in Biden's style not to speak unless he has something to say. And for him to come out there and says, well, you know, we're monitoring the situation, and of course we're concerned, um, certainly doesn't add much, except it gives people a sense that there's a commander-in-chief in charge. And I was thinking about this, if this same set of circumstances had happened during the Trump administration, do you think Donald Trump would say nothing publicly for three days? Well, you know, Of course, they're almost polar opposites in terms of their personalities, but Trump would be out there repeatedly saying, you know, we are going to get to the bottom of this and our response is going to be very strong. And nobody, uh, anybody who starts this is going to regret it. And there will be uh, retaliation, the likes of which they've never seen. And he probably would, you know, ratchet up tensions. But what a lot of voters would see, at least people who like the 45th president, is, you know, projecting an image of strength, you know, and that, but that's not Joe Biden's style. He's having the Pentagon handling. He's looking at, well, you know, we're going to have to deal with China, uh, second largest economy, trade, um, copyright problems. Um look, when Mitt Romney said that Russia was the number one geopolitical enemy in 2012 and was mocked by Barack Obama, he was right. But Russia, now completely tied up with the Ukraine war, and we see how bad the Russian military is, I think the larger threat—I mean, Russia's economy is just not that big. But China's is huge. I mean, the larger threat, both competitively on the economic side— and militarily, perhaps, uh, is between the US and China. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues
2: right after this. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project big or small as a homeowner myself I always have things I want to work on for my house whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool with over 200,000 pros in their network Angie makes it a breeze From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Let's go to number two.
1: Mike Pence getting ready to resist that grand jury subpoena that he testify or provide documents, et cetera. Uh, in the DOJ investigation of Donald Trump uh, trying to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, Washington Post citing two people familiar with the former vice president's thinking. Pence's decision to challenge special counsel Jack Smith's request is not really about executive privilege, which is what Trump talks about. Rather, this gets into sort of the uh, legalese, but bear with me. Pence is set to argue that his former role as president of the Senate Therefore, a member of the legislative branch shields him from certain Justice Department demands, um, and this involves something called the speech or debate clause, which protects people for what they say on the floor of the House or Senate. Um, and it's it strikes me as kind of an obscure argument involving the separation of powers and so forth. Uh, one of the sources familiar with Pence's thinking, he thinks the speech or debate clause is a core protection. He really feels it goes to the heart of some separation of powers issues. Uh, He feels duty-bound to maintain that protection, even if it means litigating. it. Well, that's probably good news for Donald Trump. But, you know, on on first glance, I mean, the vice president of the United States is a member of the executive branch. He does, it's kind of a unique, it's kind of a quirk of the Constitution, have this secondary role as president of the Senate, which you mostly notice. Uh, when any vice president is called upon to break a tie vote. So he does have a little office in the Senate and so forth. And you could argue, I guess he is arguing, that he was in his role as president of the Senate when he was the presiding officer on January 6th, um, after, you know, beginning earlier and then concluding it after the riot um, to certify the Electoral College result that made Joe Biden president. So, you know, lawyers are very good at coming up with this stuff. Whether that argument will carry any weight, I don't know. You would think executive privilege would be easier to defend. On the other hand, it stretches it out, you know. And then the DOJ has to respond, and that could be a legal mess because it's just all, a lot of this stuff hasn't never been tested. I mean, there've been a lot of executive privilege cases, but in the context of a criminal investigation of the former president of the United States, and whether or not you can get subpoena testimony from the former vice president of the United States, Um, let's just say I can see why this could take a while. Um, Oh, here's a a related couple of Trump items. So, you know, he's he's reviving, again on Truth Social, this argument about the nature of some of the documents that he took to Mar-a-Lago. Many of the so called documents were merely inexpensive and very common folders with words such as presidential reading, confidential classified stamped on the front cover. I'm just a folder collector, right um, Trump wrote, and this this part really bothers me, and i I'm consistent. I don't think anybody in either party should go there. Many of the so called documents that the Gestapo took in the raid of Mar-a-Lago, Gestapo in quotes, unlike the non-raids of Biden, although we do know the FBI supervised uh, the search of the Penn-Biden uh, Center. But it didn't have to be a raid because it was the Biden people who went to the Justice Department. Anyway, these folders, very common folders with words such as why I said that. Um, there was nothing inside the folders because when the papers were taken back, the empty folders would uh, be left behind. I would put them in a pile and keep them as he meant to write mementos. And one of the reasons I know that nobody is editing Donald Trump's true social posts is he makes a lot of spelling mistakes. So he actually wrote, I would put them in the pile and keep them as momentous. But he meant mementos. Nothing wrong with that. It just sounds to me the Justice Department views these as documents. That they are not. Okay. Story number three. This is so typical of what we see in Washington. Where... Somebody says something that later looks pretty bad. It's later disproven. That later is kind of an embarrassing position to hold. And at that point, any public person has two choices. You can either say, you know what? I made a mistake. And here's why I made the mistake. And I can see now that I was wrong. Or you fudge and obfuscate and blame it on the media. Now, which do you think is the most common response here inside the Beltway? So, this has to do with James Clapper, former top intelligence official for the United States government. And it also is related to, yes, I know I keep bringing this up, but it's still in the news, um, the Hunter Biden laptop story. Because one of the most noteworthy things about the laptop story, I mean, there's lots of stuff to talk about. One of the most noteworthy things is that much of the press bought the line being peddled by people like James Clapper, who hardly was the only one, you know, who, who've now gone on to have these network gigs at MSNBC and CNN, that this sounded like, smelled like Russian disinformation. So here you have, you know, we now know Hunter Biden went to this Delaware repair shop, left his uh, laptop there, all kinds of um, embarrassing and potentially incriminating stuff. I don't know. We'll we'll see about that. And Clapper was one of the ex-officials who signed this letter a letter signed by lots of other former officials saying this really seen, had all the earmarks of Russian disinformation. And he would go on the air and he would say, you know, this is all the marks of a classic Soviet-style campaign. And he wasn't alone. There were lots of other people who signed this letter. So now, after Politico did a story, of, at the time, Politico's headline was, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former intel officials say. That was published just a few weeks before the 2020 election. Biden even brought it up. He talked about the laptop story being part of a Russian plan during a debate. So now, Clapper's fighting back. Clapper is saying there was message distortion. Clapper is saying Politico deliberately distorted the letter and sensationalized what the letter actually suggested. Quote, all we were doing was raising a yellow flag that this could be Russian disinformation. Politico deliberately distorted what we said. Well, sorry, Mr. Clapper, but I don't see it that way. (laughs) Because it's a letter. It's not you know, two sources say that James Clapper was heard saying this in a private conversation at some embassy. The letter is there. Politico, like others, quoted from it extensively. Yes, you didn't say that as an absolute verified fact, because it wasn't, and you couldn't have known that being out of government, that this was Russian disinformation, but you made pretty clear your view that that was, let's just say, extremely likely. And a lot of the press followed your lead. And looking back— that was embarrassing, uh, and then you have you know you have the whole sidebar story of Twitter making sure people couldn't share the New York Post story and all that. So I think now again, Clapper could have said, look, that seemed really logical at the time, uh, what, based on what we now know. I mean, you know, he doesn't have to attack the media for something that he not only wrote and said on the air, but you know this document that he signed, which if I had it in front of me, I would read you a lot of the other big names, former intel officials who were saying this during the last year of the Trump administration. You know, a lot of them Democrats, not all. So that's the latest fight on that. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this.
0: That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today.
1: Story four. This is fascinating to me, and I hope it will be to you, of course, because it's about the difference between campaigning and governing. Campaigning is fun, it's rough and tumble, it's kind of like sports. And there's a lot of travel involved, and the press loves it. Governing is a slog. Governing is having to spend months and months writing about Biden's $3 trillion Build Back Better bill, which never got to Build Back Better, but there was obviously a compromise slimmed down version that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema finally got on board with. Um, governing is slow, it's frustrating. Um, it is sometimes like watching paint dry, but of course it's important given that that's where the, you know, the money is actually appropriated and uh, the policies are actually made and the federal rules are actually written. And this is what the House Republicans are confronting now. Before I get into this piece, the classic example is when the Republicans were in the minority in the House before Donald Trump won, they passed, I think it was over 50 resolutions, it might have even been 60 or 80, I mean, who's counting, saying we must get rid of the evil scourge of Obamacare. Then, under President Trump, there were three different attempts in Congress to do that, and they all failed, one most dramatically when John McCain cast the deciding vote late at night on the floor? Because the question that all those Republican lawmakers had to ask themselves is, this is no longer rhetoric. If we get rid of this, what, do we replace it with something? If we don't replace it with something, what about all the people who can lose their health insurance and will be blamed? And then you get into the argument how you replace it. Okay, all of which is to tee up the following. A bill targeting progressive prosecutors whom Republicans have long considered too lean is facing a wall of opposition from libertarian-leaning members of Congress. Hard-right lawmakers have effectively blocked legislation that would require law enforcement officials running background checks on firearm purchases to report if a prospective buyer is in the U.S. illegally. These are different examples from a New York Times story. And the House Republicans' marquee bill to crack down on immigration at the border with Mexico has been derailed by a faction within the party including some more mainstream GOP members who regard it as overly restrictive, fearing it would effectively end asylum in the United States. So, six weeks into the majority, which isn't a lot, in all fairness, Republican leaders have found themselves paralyzed on some of the biggest issues they promised to address as they pressed to win control of the House, and internal policy disputes have made it difficult. So, yeah, it's one thing, and this is the dilemma for Kevin McCarthy. It's one thing to preside over the House when you've got a 20-seat majority or a 40-seat majority. When you have a four- or five-seat majority, it's a lot more difficult. But even if you have a bigger majority, I mean, there are always factions. And the Democrats struggle with this as well, and that's why the Democrats haven't been able to pass uh, their police reform bill or um, their assault weapons ban. Uh, there probably it's more a classic, the Republicans will block it. But there are just a lot of different views within a party, and that's why governing is a lot harder than it looks. So, for example, here's Kevin McCarthy saying, when we deal with immigration, a lot of members have a lot of different positions. Uh, Now, some things did pass, a bill authorizing a select committee on the Chinese Communist Party, uh, also Democrats help support, uh, an end to the coronavirus pandemic and others are trying to rewrite DC's criminal code, which is hundred years old. You know, DC doesn't have full home rule. Congress can block or mandate certain things for the nation's capital. All right. So here's uh, Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina. Uh, we're doing everything we can right now to lose the majority in two years. She said it's independent swing, purple districts that got us the majority. Barely got us the majority. We nominated candidates that couldn't win general elections. We floundered on the post-Roe era. So she is saying, we go down this road, you can kiss 2024 goodbye. A well of opposition to the border bill, uh, led by Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas, emerged from different parts of the House GOP, including Floridians who worry about the implications for the Cuban Diaspora members of the New York delegation and members of the center-right mainstream caucus who say the bill would essentially end asylum. The sponsor, uh, Chip Roy of Texas, says that's not true. So McCarthy had planned to put this particular immigration measure, I mean, there's one issue that the Republican Party has been so identified with. And in fact, the House Speaker planning a trip, I believe it's Thursday, to the border. He's been there before, but going there with a delegation as House Speaker, will, of course, help him highlight the problem. But does it help him pass the legislation? Uh, He had to delay action after concluding that, with all Democrats opposed, he would not be able to muster a Republican majority to push it through. And that's sort of the, uh, you know, 15 ballots to get the job. And it turns out, kind of a thankless job. Okay, number five. Republicans and conservatives are facing the notion or fear that for all his weaknesses and the age issue and all that, President Biden may well win a second term. So here's Rich Lowry writing a National Review, and referring back in this reference to what happened at the State of the Union. If the voters believe the choice is between a rickety Joe Biden and the party of a yowling Marjorie Taylor Greene, they're going to pick Biden every time. So it's not says Rich, as Newt Gingrich notably argued a few months ago, that Biden is more formidable than we thought, it's that he's proven capable, despite his limitations, of beating whoever Republicans put on the field. The NFC South champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers weren't very good this year either, but when everyone else in your division is literally 7 and 10, being good isn't so necessary. So Larry, you know, a little earlier in this piece goes through, you know, Biden's frailties and Um, weaknesses he's seen. He's never been a particularly great politician. But, you know, I would just throw in, Biden has one thing that is very valuable in politics. He's continually underestimated. I mean, all of the political uh, and media obituaries that were written for Joe Biden uh, when he tried to run in 2020 and got clobbered in Iowa and New Hampshire before rescuing his candidacy uh, are quite amazing. And now, you know, not to sugarcoat it, you have these polls showing uh, 58% in the Washington Post-ABC polls say they don't want him to run for a second term. And a lot of that follow-up interview showed is about age. He's 80 years old. He can't do anything about that. But back to the Lowry piece. Um, Trump leads in the polling and had to head matchups with Biden. But who would be shocked if Biden, working with a mountain of anti-Trump material that grows almost by the day, prevails against him again if he should be the GOP nominee? All this doesn't mean we should panic uh, on the right says Lowry, but it does counsel taking Biden seriously. At times in 2022, the political environment seemed like it would save Republicans from paying the price for poor candidate choices, which is to say a lot of the people recruited by the former president. Um, So going with the risky choice in 2024, Donald Trump makes a disastrous second Biden term likelier, even if by no means certain. Trump already lost to him once. That was before his delusions about the 2020 election. Remember, National Review, not a big fan of Donald Trump. Uh, Already lost. um, Before January 6th, he added a whole host of new outlandish statements and actions to his already prodigious record. And before his once fresh political act began to grow stale. I'm sure Trump supporters would refute uh, everything that Lowry just said. But he's just saying, look, Biden has a knack for winning He's not that talented. You don't have to be that talented if Republicans play into his hands. There's every reason to believe that the Trump who lost to Biden in 2020 was much stronger than the Trump of today. The association with Trump proved politically toxic in the 2022 midterms, and nothing has changed that dynamic. Well, there's a long way to go there. Um, Obviously, Rich Lowry is among those on the right who prefer to see any other nominee other than Donald Trump. And, you know, it does raise this question, if for some reason, and he's still the front runner, I think, and still the likely GOP nominee, but we'll see, Um, if for some reason Trump doesn't get the nomination, whatever the reason is, I think the chances of Joe Biden winning a second term go down pretty significantly. Of course, it depends on who the Republicans put up, but just simply having somebody who is decades younger I think, could be a real obstacle for the 46th president. Now, in short then, the best candidate from Biden's point of view that he can run against is Trump. And the best candidate from Trump's point of view that he can run against is Biden. Because if he ends up running against some younger Democrat, he doesn't get the benefit of that age issue, which is tempered anyway, because Donald Trump will be 78 at the time of the next election. So... This is what people are buzzing about. Thank you for spending some time with me. I appreciate it. Hope you'll subscribe to our little venture here. And we're back here tomorrow. See you then with more Buzzmeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music.